0: Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. brought to you this week by Eero and Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you
1: don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hacken. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hello, Stephen. How are you today?
0: I'm doing just fine. How are you?
1: I'm good. Uh, We have a bunch of stuff here to to talk about. As always, uh, but I do want to remind people just off the bat that we are still doing our Apollo 50th anniversary thing, and the next episode will be Apollo Nine. So be prepared, be prepared for that. It's going to be fun. I've been doing some reading, and you know, Nine sort of uh, I think gets forgotten in the shuffle of things, right? They, they sort of maybe not as glamorous as some of the other missions, but an important step. So we'll, we will dive into that next week. Uh, but first. I wanted to point out we spoke a couple times ago about the government shutdown affecting basically everything, including NASA's Day of Remembrance. Uh, they did mark that last week on February seventh. Uh, nothing really unusual about how they marked it. It's pretty much how how it's been done for a long time. But I just want to yeah, point just, out that they, just they, late, yeah, they, they got it on the calendar. Um, there's some some comments from Brian Stein and other officials. Uh, there's a link in the show notes if you want to go go find that. But uh, uh, always a sobering reminder. at The beginning of the year, this industry we cover on the show is uh, can be really like heartbreaking at times.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was good to, to have the administrator at Arlington National Cemetery, and of course at the at the astronaut memorial down at uh, Kennedy Space Center, uh, doing their thing a little bit later, but they still do it every year.
1: There is some uh, new.
0: I don't know space media. I don't have a term for this. Yeah, uh, yeah, we don't have a we don't have a special acronym for this. It's just part of the preflights checklist. Uh, but the prefect, but future uh, liftoff homework, probably. Yeah, yeah, it, the, the things that we're gonna we're gonna have to watch. Uh, and the first one is that there's this upcoming uh, 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Of course, we're doing our liftoff episodes, but that's not the only thing going on. Just not just liftoff. Also. <laughs> The, uh, there's this, uh, Apollo 11 documentary that's coming out, which is, there's a great story. Uh, you can read about it in Vanity Fair about how this movie got made. It is, uh, so apparently like MGM, somebody at NASA sold MGM, the movie studio on the idea of, uh, filming in like 70 millimeter film, wow. all of these things about the beginnings of the planning and all the way up to the mission. And they were going to make a movie of it or NASA was going to pay or something. And then at some point, MGM apparently like decided they weren't going to do it, but they kept filming anyway. Uh, NASA convinced them or something. And they have all the 70 millimeter footage. And according to this story and the people who made this movie, most of it got, uh, was was never seen by the public and was filed away in the National Archives for the last 50 years. And they took all of that footage and a bunch of interviews that the astronauts did in various places and they put it all together into this documentary about Apollo 11 that is basically told by the astronauts with all of this amazing, high-quality film footage from the period. And uh, the trailer looks amazing, and I am really looking forward to seeing it.
1: Yeah, I was just watching it uh, silently as you were speaking, and this footage looks... I mean, it looks modern, right? Like it's really incredible. I mean, it's
0: seventy millimeter. It could not be more higher. I mean, we we think sometimes of the space program from that era as being kind of this low resolution TV era, right? But it this stuff was shot in seventy millimeter film. It is like Lawrence of Arabia kind of yeah. stuff for the space program. And so then you take that and you clean it up, you restore it, you uh, you know put a, a HD trailer on on uh, YouTube, and I'm sure in a movie theater this is going to be. Uh, completely spectacular. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this. Uh, another thing
1: I wanted to point people to, and our friend uh, Mike Hurley uh, told me about this just yesterday. So I watched this last night. Uh, Netflix has an original series called Seven Days Out, and I love I love the premise of this. So they uh, this team, a documentary team, I guess, went around to like a bunch of big events or you know sort of big happenings, and then worked their way backwards a week. to so, like to follow people involved in the event, the seven days leading up to it. And one of the episodes is about the end of the Cassini mission and its final plunge into Saturn. So it follows uh, the project manager, the engineering lead, and the science lead who have worked together for decades, and they're sort of uh, reflecting on the last 20 years or longer of Cassini, and then their emotions, sort of the roller coaster as this you know, a career defining mission winds down, and it was it's forty five minutes or so. Uh, I really enjoyed it, uh, and I, I could definitely recommend that if you are looking for something on Netflix, it should it should go on your watch list. It was really a neat look uh, inside the team. You know, we don't necessarily see all that sort of interplay when we, when we cover these topics, but uh, you know, it's kind of funny, like how the, the engineering would be on one side and science would be on the other side and science would ask engineering, can we do this? And they would say no. And then they would think about it. And like the project manager in the middle would be like, well, maybe we can do it this way or that way. And like the give and take and the push and pull between these different organizations uh, was really interesting to learn about and to see, and to see people who clearly have the utmost Uh, respect for each other and the work they're doing. Seeing that wind down um, was a a really neat way
0: to spend an evening. I downloaded this episode when you sent the link to me, and we'll watch it uh, probably the next time I fly on a plane, which will be very soon. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's really cool. Uh, Something interesting about it, and they talk
1: about it because two of the the leads on Cassini were women, and they talk about how when they started – They'd be the only woman in the room, you know, nine times out of ten, and they sort of bracket the um, the progress that's been made in diversity in the scientific community, sort of through the lens of like the Cassini mission. And now, you know, at the the footage of the, the the final days, it's an extremely diverse crew working on it, uh, age, uh, gender, uh, everything. And it was really. It was interesting to hear their perspective on it, having seen those changes. And of course, they say, and and we echo, there's a lot more work to do uh, in this regard, but it was neat to see their perspective as over time that it wasn't just basically white dudes working on this. It was was an interesting uh, angle to it. Cool. I will check it out. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Um, I have a very quick, uh, boring and depressing item, which is just that the uh the commercial crew dates continue to slip uh partially because of the government shutdown and partially because they are human spaceflight dates and therefore they are gonna slip yeah <laughs> and in this case it is uh spacex is now looking at early march they say that's a date that used to be january 16th and then slid into february and slid right on through into march and uh Eric at Ars Technica was on Twitter talking about it and um and I, I think there was a mention was it in the State of the Union there was a mention of uh the US returning to space in twenty nineteen and when that was going on, uh Eric Berger was pointing at the um this and this announcement about the about the um SpaceX date and said I would not necessarily be so confident that that we're finally going to get human space flight from the US in 2019 it's it it, it may happen it's not it's not like it it can happen but any Any bump on the road, and it's probably sliding into 2020. But uh, I I think right now, you know, their next step is they got to launch Crew Dragon on SpaceX, and then you know Boeing has to follow with theirs, um, with nobody in it, but uh, testing the system, and then they can start talking about getting the humans up there. And I think we're all hoping for that. Uh, But I think those summer wishes may be sliding into the fall and. We'll just have to see, but uh, though there has been confidence professed by the U.S. government that they're going to be up there in 2019, um, things are, I think, unsurprisingly, sliding.
1: Mm -hmm. It's the story of Commercial
0: Crew. Uh, There was a tweet too. uh, I
1: think that evening I tried looking for it, and it's just it's just gone into the ether somewhere. But sort of, so someone voiced some like, you know, when you put like hard deadlines on things, people. Tempted to cut corners or like speed things up where they shouldn't and i I understand that mentality and there's a balance to everything but uh it's sort of an an interesting
0: perspective yeah somebody basically said uh, i remember that tweet it was this is how accidents happen so you cannot all of in the both the space shuttle um missions but especially challenger you could argue that they were eventually pointing at uh, people who knew that something was a problem but there was a a rush, a feeling of pressure to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the challenge. You want to move forward, but you also want to listen to people who have have, uh, questions about some aspect of it. So having the president stand there and say, we're going to do it this year, um, great to set a deadline, but you want to make sure that um, everything is still safe. Absolutely. Well, we have much more to talk about, but before we do get into our regular topics, I think I should probably talk about one of our sponsors, don't you? Sounds good. All right, so this episode is brought to you by the nice people at Eero. I love this product so much. Uh, you can build a Wi-Fi system that is perfectly tailored to your home home. Considering the high bandwidth world we live in now, you need a distributed network in your home, something that will get you the best speeds available and get it anywhere you are in your home. Eero is basically an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system. It's the kind of thing that businesses build in their uh, on their sites so that everyone can go anywhere and be on the internet. You can have this in your home, and you don't need an IT staff to do it. You can do it in just a few minutes. The second-generation Eero device has three 5 gigahertz radios for increased speed and range, sits flat on any service, any uh, surface, it connects over Ethernet or it'll connect wirelessly. And then there's the magic. You expand the coverage throughout your home by adding in. Eero beacons. They're little devices that plug directly into your wall. You don't have to have them wired or anything like that. And they will communicate back with the main Eero. They will let you fill in all the gaps and reach every part of your home. It's super easy to use and to configure. I set mine up. It was uh, it was really no trouble. An app walks you through it and you say, are you ready to add another Eero? And you plug it in and watch for the light to change and you press the button and it all just kind of works. And there's also now Eero Plus, which is a service that can provide simple, reliable, security to help defend all the devices in your home from bad stuff like malware and unsuitable content and phishing attacks it automatically tags sites that contain bad content you have powerful parental controls it includes ad blocking it's also possible to have euro plus check the sites you visit against a database of unknown threats so you can uh, stay away from anything malicious even includes subscriptions to one password so you can keep your passwords locked up Malware bytes for antivirus and encrypt.me. So, so many different things rolled into Eero Plus. And everything about Wi Fi, again, you can get $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package and one year of Eero Plus by going to this URL, Eero.com slash liftoff. At checkout, use the promo code liftoff. That's E E R O dot com slash liftoff and the code liftoff. Thank you to Eero for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. So we have some more New Horizons news. Yes. Uh, so, hmm, you know that snowman. You know that peanut that we've been talking about. The universe, it turns out, is uh, weirder than we suppose. We kind of assumed, as we talked about last fortnight, that this was kind of like a snowman because it was the it's it's a contact binary. It's two objects that are attached together, sort of gently, and they're stuck together. And we thought it's a snowman. It's two spheres. And uh, then a different angle turns out has made it clear as again, there's so many photos that are yet to come back. They're still streaming back. They'll be streaming back for a couple of years, but we got a new angle from after the flyby that makes it very clear that these are, actually too much flatter objects than we had supposed stuck together. Um, The way this works is they took this shot looking back. So it's a, it's a uh, kind of a silhouetted shot and they found that the stars were reappearing too quickly from what they expected around the object, which meant that it was not as spherical as they thought. So there's a larger one, the Ultima lobe. uh, That's the one that looks more, it's flatter. It looks more like a pancake and then there's Thule, the the smaller lobe, which is um, in my notes here, Stephen. It seems like you have described it as a dented walnut, which is interesting. It's, it's like you drive your walnut uh, and it goes up on the curb and hits into something. Yeah, gets a dent.
1: It happens sometimes mm, with walnuts. Dented walnuts.
0: Yeah, it's it's a <laughs> weird object. It is it even is. weirder than we thought. And uh, so it, I am officially saying it is no longer a snowman. It is now a walnut pancake. Walnut pancakes are good.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah, you can see the image in the show notes where they they have it backlit, and it's basically the, the spacecraft is racing away from the scene. Right. Like it, it, New Horizons doesn't slow down for this. Right. It just it's a drive-by type deal. Zoom. And uh, and this is this happened. This image is like ten minutes after it crossed the closest approach point. So it spins around and gets this this picture. Uh, it's backlit. Or something sort of uh, I told I told you this in slack something sort of unsettling about this animation they put together like how quickly it's moving and i don't I don't know it's 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 so strange to see something so far away seems so uh lifelike you know so so animated but but there he is and uh and yeah not not round which is not not what we spoke about is not really what what the team spoke about, but it goes to show how much more data there is to to deal with right and and even theories that were relative or you know theories that were relevant excuse me a month ago now have been tossed out as new data comes in and that'll be the case over the coming months as more data is downloaded from New Horizons and, and sifted through by these teams that they we're learning as we go with this thing and you know we haven't seen one of these objects up close before it is an unknown world to us and so what we know today could be something different down the road
0: yeah that's for me that's the key thing is that it's it's something that is um we we talk about our astronomers talk about contact binaries and weird shapes of of stuff that's not large enough to kind of collapse into a circle or you know into a into a sphere and be like all these nice planets we see that are just a big ball like pluto right pluto which is a minor planet don't don't email me um but there's weird stuff out there too and we theoretically know it and can infer it from far far away but it's very different to be up close to one of these and that will help change our conception of how a lot of these scattered icy objects that are not big enough to be a big sphere like pluto um are uh you know what they're what they're like out there in the kuiper belt strange corner of the solar system <laughs> it turns out it's a very weird neighborhood it
1: is I want to shift gears a little bit and we've spoken about the Mars 2020 rover several times so sort of the the sequel to the Curiosity rover built on the same chassis but all new uh instrumentation on it it's going to do, do work on different things and uh NASA is getting ready for uh for it showing up with MAVEN so remember MAVEN it launched a couple of years ago several years ago now and it's satellite orbiting Mars and it's Mission was to ascertain what happened to the atmosphere at Mars. So we know that uh, Mars has an atmosphere; it's far thinner than ours. And the the thought, uh, the theory has been that so- the solar wind basically stripped it away over time. Maven's findings basically back that up, and it's also doing some stuff looking at water, looking at the the ice caps. But Maven has enough fuel to last through 2030 or so, so it is being repurposed in part to become a communications relay for the mars 2020 rover so instead of having to talk back to earth directly uh, the rover can talk to maven which can then send data back uh, faster than the rover would be able to able to on its own so to do this the team is basically lowering the orbit uh, of maven around mars so Uh, Right now, it's circling Mars like uh, 5.3 times a day. Uh, It's going to be able to bump it up to 6.8, so you'll have better coverage, more frequent flyovers to get the data from the rover and then hand it back off uh, to the Deep Space Network uh, when it's in sight. So sort of getting ready, kind of getting things in place, and uh, another step towards uh, having another rover on the
0: red planet. Yeah, I love the idea of Um, as I've said on this show before, the idea that we've got a bunch of satellites around Mars now, and we can use them for communication. And this is another great example where this thing was only on a relatively short mission, two years, but it's still got fuel to spare for more than a decade. And, um, and they've done these aerobraking maneuvers before in order to sample the atmosphere. So just doing it again, changing it to be a little bit better located for, uh, Uh, doing a job as a relay satellite it's just such a cool thing to have um Mm -hmm. them be flexible in this way i would imagine that this is something that was talked about all along as part of maven but they they don't necessarily talk about that stuff publicly but you know i think if you're doing game planning for mars missions everybody is talking to everybody else about the hardware that's going to be there when they're there in order to uh, make their missions work well and this is a this is a cool cool bit of teamwork
1: yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the air braking. So they're not using a ton of fuel to do this. They're basically using just enough fuel to drop a little bit lower, and then the drag will pull it into the orbit that they want. Right. Uh, that's going to take like three hundred and sixty orbits, or like two and a half months. Slow. It's a very gradual process. Uh, but doing that means that they can uh, basically conserve that fuel. Yeah. So if they need to make adjustments down the road to say, say stay in contact with. Mars 2020, then they have the fuel, they can fire up the thrusters then, but they want to reserve that as long as possible, and they can they can do this with just physics and without yeah, fuel. Yeah, so because the not? atmosphere
0: is providing that force that's slowing them down instead of them just blasting right. their thrusters, and it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so yeah, so Maven will uh, press on into service for, you know, uh, an, a, at least another decade, it sounds like, servicing Mars 2020, and I would assume future... Uh, martian programs you know like you said everyone's talking to each other if there are things further down the road further bit out uh, maybe that this is in the conversation for that as well yeah looks good i love recycling is what i'm saying it's
0: really good it's uh it's it's very cool to see this i the robustness of these spacecraft too that's the other thing that strikes me about all this is that you know i i realize this is part of the game now but it's the oh well it's gonna last two years mm or you know 15. <laughs> yeah. Like I love that about it, but they they need to make them this robust and if they get them to to work right and there aren't um equipment failures, they can last a lot longer than than planned and that's uh that's really awesome. So we have to talk about this. I have really was trying to avoid it because I just want to
1: hit my head you on the know, desk,
0: but the, it, there is something telling about the note that I have in this section of our little document being why was this a thing? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so our our friends – we don't mm. know them, but everyone's friends at Mars One – remember them? Remember Mars One? Mm. So they had this grand plan for – Space
0: exploration on Mars colonization. they were going to have hundred astronauts in the training program where they were going to find astronauts to go to Mars. They were going to have. There were lots of awesome like YouTube videos with computer graphics of people living on Mars yeah. and rockets firing. And they they had yeah. this pitch for like they were going to do a reality show about finding the Mars astronauts and training them mm-hmm. and all of that. Um, And you're thinking out there, dear listener, you're thinking, why have I never really heard of them before? And how in the world could this company I've never heard of be planning to send astronauts to Mars when we don't even know how they would get there? And the answer is, you are less gullible than whoever the Mars One was targeting. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah, this, none of this is happening.
0: No, seems, and they're bankrupt seems like... now. Uh, that's the news yeah. here: is that they are bankrupt. They got they got bought by somebody, but now they're just bankrupt. And it was was it ever a thing? Was it a, just a con? Um, were they hoping that they could build momentum into something? I don't know. I mean, maybe there was probably there was probably like a scheme that somebody had a dream that they were going to make so much money from the reality show and all of that 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 would allow them to buy Passage on a rocket or something like that. But come on. Like, uh, so weird. I guess this is the part of the Wild West nature of space exploration is that they're always yeah. going to be kind of... Uh, con men out there flim flam artists and this Hmm. i mean this is very clearly is that but but sometimes it's hard to tell right at the beginning because lots of space people talk a big game right like elon musk talks a big game about going there and and spacex is a real thing that does real things so um sometimes it can be hard to tell you got a rich guy and he's got a plan and um but this one has come apart
1: yeah so they've been taken over by money people (laughs) <laughs> I guess. And uh they're they are basically splitting in two. They're gonna have a foundation which basically says, I'm reading their press release, says own the mission hardware. i d I don't know what that is. Like uh select and train the crews, and there's another company that basically can monetize all the foundations work. No,
0: no, that was that was I think you got this the sequence wrong. That was what their announcement was a couple of years ago, when they got taken over, okay. Um, that's what they were, and then and then now they've just given up, <laughs> okay. And they're bankrupt and they're, it's gone, it's over. So,
1: yeah, rest in peace, Mars mm, One. I guess, good riddance. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you're right, like it's such a different world now. We're going to talk about early lunar missions in a second, but when it when governments were the only entities capable of doing this, it was different. Right. And, and now it's within reach of private companies and you have private companies doing real things like SpaceX and Blue Origin and ULA and all these other people. But then you were always going to have groups like this that just want to raise some money and publish some videos. And like you said, maybe someone has a good idea in there somewhere, but it's not a thing. And uh, the the hard part is now, and the new thing is now you have to sort of sort those things out. And I think that the like industry journalists did a pretty good job early on, like sort of calling foul on Mars one and saying this isn't this isn't a real thing like this this is a a hype machine designed to sell merchandise or get YouTube views or something, but they're not going to put boots on the ground on mars and and that is how it played out so I would say kudos to anyone who called that correctly, but this is a thing we have to do now is be aware there are gonna be players in the space that just um they aren't serious or they, they, or they don't want to be serious. Right. Boy, man, do you regret the Mars One T-shirt you bought? Uh, are you still, still going to wear that? Uh, I think you have me confused with somebody who even knew who they were. <laughs> <laughs> i had read about them but never took them seriously. So thankfully that is how that went. All right, like I said, we're going to talk about early lunar missions. I fell down a rabbit hole and I wanted to share with you, Jason. But uh, first, let me tell you about our second sponsor, This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea. With a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more, you should make your next move with Squarespace. Maybe you want to create an online store. Uh, Maybe you want to have it connected to a portfolio so you can show off your work and then sell work. Or you want to have a blog or host a podcast. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all that stuff. And there's nothing to install. There's no like software patches or server upgrades. You don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because Squarespace, they simply have it covered and they have award-winning 24 seven customer support. If you need any help, their site lets you create and easily grab a unique domain name and couple it to one of those award-winning templates that are all beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. Here at Relay FM, we use Squarespace for our blogs. Anytime we announce a new podcast or a new live show somewhere or something new uh, over on the merchandise store, we can just go to Squarespace. I can have a blog post written. I can write it in Markdown, which I love. I can drag in images. I can create links. I can change the layout if I want. And I can post it really easily and know that it's going to look great. If someone's on a big old iMac or a little ebdy phone, uh, it all just works. And uh, it means I can go back to what? I need to do for the day and not worry about blog formatting. I can just work, focus on my content and Squarespace handles the rest. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a free trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name to show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. I'd like to thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So we are now in this time again where there's a lot of talk about uncrewed and, and crewed, but uncrewed missions to the moon. So we have the Chinese uh, lander and rover. They've got more planned you hear from time to time about companies NASA uh, just this week is putting out more more uh money and programming for lunar landers there's a lot of stuff going on at the moon and that kind of got me thinking okay we're doing all of this Apollo 50 stuff but what what came before Apollo what was you know what missions were like the stepping stones to actually getting there and of course you have Mercury and Gemini. But as far as exploring the moon, how did we know what the moon was going to be like before we sent crew there? And so I I fell down a rabbit hole of the Pioneer and Ranger programs. Basically, my entire afternoon yesterday was reading and watching videos about this. And it's super interesting, way more interesting than I thought it would be. And we don't talk about these very much. Like I, I didn't know much about them and I have a space podcast. So I thought it'd be fun to get into this a little bit. In short, you have two programs. You have uh, Ranger, and you have uh, you have Pioneer. And uh, Ranger was basically designed to capture up close photography of the surface of the Moon. We were unsure, it, apart from telescopes, what the surface was actually like, and could we learn more by putting a camera way up close? Um, but sort of the beginning of all this was uh, the Pioneer program and as you will see as we go through this failure was a very common outcome of these early flights you had rocket failures you had vehicle failures you had all sorts of stuff go wrong but slowly but surely the you know the the newly formed nasa got their feet under them and and were able to work this out so we're talking about the late 1950s here and uh Pioneer sort of started as an attempt to launch several lunar orbiters. Um, Pioneer Zero, again, beginning a theme, was lost when its rocket failed 77 seconds after launch. So short-lived Pioneer Zero. Rest in peace. Sad. It's right off the bat. (laughs) Had a failure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's going to happen. It's early days. It's going to happen. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Uh, Pioneer 1 did not make it to the moon either. It had a third stage failure, uh, but it had a bunch of firsts, which are pretty cool. Uh, It carried an infrared television system to study the moon's surface. Again, it didn't get there, but it was also able to detect micrometeorites, and it carried tools to measure magnetic fields. Um, But it transmitted data for 43 hours in flight before re-entry. It never escaped Earth orbit. It basically went out and then came back. And it showed that the Earth's magnetic field, uh, you know, was made up of basically bands around the Earth. You know, this had been theorized. We've talked about some of this in the past on liftoff. But Pioneer 1 was early days of actually measuring this magnetic field and this radiation around the Earth and uh, broke a lot of ground in doing so. Pioneer 2 had a similar third stage failure. Um, And then I guess at some point they thought, hey, these numbers aren't working. So we had Pioneer P one, P P-3, dash three, and P thirty. Again, they all failed. Uh, but you want to tell us about Pioneer four, the first, the first success?
0: Oh, I get to do the success. That's very nice. Yes. Well, this was the uh, Pioneer four was the first successful flyby of the moon. Um, Fifty nine thousand kilometers above the surface, not close enough to actually turn on the camera. There was a photoelectric sensor. It was. It's not bright enough. Um, it did beam back some radiation levels for about 82 hours and then its batteries died and that was it. But as, as kind of disappointing as that is, it was the only successful lunar probe launched in 12 attempts between 1958 <laughs> and
1: 1963. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, it, the camera, didn't get close enough to turn the camera on basically, but Hey, you got to the moon and this was a huge, a huge success, uh, from this perspective. Pioneer continued after this. Pioneer sort of it as a program became broader. So you may know some of the hits as Voyager one and two. <laughs> a couple of little spacecraft have had a uh, uh, quite the experience,
0: right? And they were preceded by Pi- ten and eleven. Pioneer ten and eleven, which I think for ages Pioneer ten was the furthest uh, away mm-hmm. from humanity, uh, human created object, and was sending back data until two thousand three. Um, I think so. And so that was like, and and, uh, it's interesting to read about Pioneer 11 actually um, also went out, uh, you know, past Jupiter and uh, and out into deep space. But because of its trajectory, its antenna doesn't point at the Earth anymore. <laughs> so it's out there, too, probably radioing home, but it's not pointed in the right direction. And there's nobody to, to receive it. Well, it may be dead now, but Pioneer 10 lasted until 2003, which is pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have a program that was... We talk about Maven, right? This is a, 30, a, pro- a probe that went past <laughs> Jupiter and out in the outer solar system and then kept radioing home for 30 yeah. years. Uh, and you know the same with Voyager, right? They continue to truck
1: on at the very edge of the solar wind or even past it now. And it, again, for, from what amazes me about these four missions is this came out of a program that had a lot of failure at the beginning and they had a bunch of hits. And, and a lot of this was the rocket technology that the rockets were just unreliable in the beginning. And as they became uh, more reliable, it equipped the team to do these other things uh, but you know, I think it's easy to look at Pioneer as a program and think, oh well that's the one with all the failures, but you get into its later history, uh some of the most successful things we've ever sent to space came out of this program. Yep. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um but I want to shift gears a little bit to the Ranger program. So this came around in the nineteen sixties as part of the overall okay, we're supposed to land on the moon. Uh we need we need to gather more data on what that surface is like. So again, we had some some failings uh the the first six flights basically all failed it earned the nickname of shoot and hope which (laughs) Mm. is rough uh real rough um and that uh prompted as you may imagine a congressional investigation
0: the um i i steven i think i solved the problem i think i figured out what was wrong they were uh, flying on the Atlas Agena. Oh, no. And as we know, the upper stage Agena was also used as the unmanned orbital target vehicle for Gemini to do docking and rendezvous tests. And they were... Uh, it was really bad. And they were really unreliable and dangerous and not good. So... um yeah, that was the, that's uh, that's a tough one. This was a, this was a uh, for all of the things that were going right on the Apollo side later in the sixties, the uh, Agena stuff was uh, not so great.
1: Yeah, it's a very problematic upper upper stage. Mm.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Anytime agenda comes up now when we do these shows, I'm just like, oh no, what did it do now? But
0: they, you know, but but this was important. The the Ranger stuff was important because they were not convinced. I believe I read something that said that they were not entirely convinced that if you tried to land on the moon, you wouldn't fall through like dust that's like a mile deep and just sink down and be lost forever. They weren't convinced that there was solid ground on the moon. So they they needed to check it out and uh, get a better sense of what the lunar surface looked like.
1: And the rangers were designed to do exactly that. So they're pretty simple. You can look at pictures of them. Uh, Not complicated machinery on these things. They had some thrusters and they had basically cameras pointing out the front designed to take images... As it neared the moon, uh, they had, um, you know, basically putting a camera up closer, you had much higher resolution. And so you could begin to discern things, like you said, is this just completely soft and we're just going to sink through it? Or uh, is it covered in something that we can't see from our Earth-based telescopes that cause a problem? The probe would switch between two camera systems as it got closer, so different focal lengths, different camera technology. And uh, the rangers were designed to impact the moon. And those impacts would be watched on Earth. And uh, again, trying to understand maybe, you know, how much dust does this kick mm. up? What sort of impact are we seeing? And so they would basically beam back images closer and closer and closer and then strike the surface of the moon.
0: And that was a successful mission. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. You, you were successful if you crashed into the moon, uh, unless you were Ranger 4. Ranger 4, the spacecraft basically never worked. Like, it, they launched it, and something happened during launch, I guess, and it never powered on. They hit the moon, but they hit the moon as a dead spacecraft. Mm. Uh, Ranger 6 also impacted. It turned on, at least, but uh, the cameras failed. And, again, investigation, NASA saying, hey, let's get into this. Let's see why this is failing. Something the agency does, you know, in big missions and... Uh, they led to several design changes to this, in, this investigation and uh, including, which I found really interesting, like more robust on-ground testing. Uh, I, I don't know how much they were doing before, but that became a more robust part of the program. Uh, Ranger 7 launched on July 28th, 1964, and it worked. It beamed back pictures showing the moon to be a rocky place that seemed solid enough for craft to land on. And, uh, you know, again, uh, several attempts later, finally got their first hit. Hooray! Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Ranger 7 is also credited, and I I love the story, I think you love the story, too, of being the beginning
0: of the peanut tradition (laughs) (laughs) at (sighs) at, at NASA. The very scientific (laughs) minds and also um, either humorously or seriously um, having superstitions. Um, and so the idea here is that they had all these failures, and in Ranger Seven, I mean, literally, somebody was eating some peanuts in the control room while they le- they did Ranger Seven, and it worked. And somebody said, "Well, ha, huh, you know, Gary was eating peanuts, so that you know that must must have solved it. That must have <laughs> fixed it. Let's always have peanuts in mission control." And that seems ridiculous, and it is entirely true. Since 1964, control rooms ceremonially open a container of peanuts uh for luck and also at this point for for tradition but uh it started with ranger seven because uh the first rangers were not good yeah
1: hey you know if it's successful and you look around the room and that's what your your monkey brain attaches to then peanuts it was the peanuts fine. it's fine
0: yeah that's that's it's fine
1: yep uh, Ranger 8 and 9 followed in 1965, basically like back-to-back, just weeks apart, sending additional photos of the surface back to Earth. And they had different trajectories, so they wanted to photograph uh, more surface than they were able to with uh, Ranger 7. Um, this included a section of the surface only about 70 kilometers from where Apollo 11 would touch down just, just four years later. So not quite the landing spot, but closer to it, again, just trying to cover uh more moon surface and, you know, Ranger paved the way, right? It it was a simple mission, basically take pictures as long as you can and then crash into it. And we'll see how that goes. But but we didn't, we just didn't know. And I kind of like the simplicity of these things. I like, what are we trying to find out? What's the simplest way we could do it. And they finally were successful at it. And it's an important part of lunar history that I at least wasn't super familiar with.
0: And, uh, now i now i am yeah this is this is early days stuff and i mean pioneer i didn't really realize all the different pioneers like because i again 10 and 11 is what you know and then it led to voyager but to have it be um all those other missions i had no idea and and ranger i'm not sure i'd even ever heard of it and if i had it hadn't registered so this is a really interesting uh, laying some foundation for more glamorous space missions uh from the u.s
1: Hmm. yeah <laughs> absolutely uh, yeah, so next week or next fortnight, I should say, we'll be back with a with Apollo
0: 9. Yep, we're going to ride in a Saturn V and uh we're going to fly around uh, Earth with the lunar module cuz that was what they did and it's a very interesting mission, uh, very different from Apollo 8, but uh important. Nonetheless, on the, li- on the limb was finally
1: got ready. They're finally ready to test it well, after months and months. Well, and
0: think about it, you know, we're 5 months away from Apollo Eleven. So things are mm-hmm. the pace is quickening here rapidly.
1: Yes, it definitely is. And that that time frame is interesting. That the limb didn't fly until that sort of period of time before the end of the, de- the decade. I mean, they
0: cutting it closer than than anticipated. Yeah. I think. Yeah, for sure. But that'll be good. Uh, I love those uh, Apollo episodes. So we've got we've got uh, that one in the queue for next time. Uh,
1: until then, if you want to find uh, additional stuff about things we talked about there are a bunch of links over on the website relay.fm slash liftoff slash 91 while you're there you can do a bunch of stuff you can send us email uh, feedback or topic suggestions there's a link in the sidebar also to our tumblr blog where we post links to things in between episodes it's really fun to share stuff uh, more often than every fortnight and then you can find us on twitter from that uh, that page as well you can find jason as J snell and you can find me there as ismh And until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios.